Hello everybody, it's another podcast from the Don't Forget the Bubbles conference in Melbourne and this one's been very interesting. We've been delving into curious areas, esoteric areas and stuff that you may not have thought about if you were a high-performing paediatrician. Now that puts us in a fairly rarefied company and there are people talking about things that are really on the fringes of, of knowledge and what we know in around about medicine and I went to a fantastic talk this morning which had the absolutely brilliant name, The Night Max wore his wolf suit. Now, I'm sure some of you get that reference. I've got Yanni Gertzema. Hey, Yanni. Hey, Doug. We're shaking hands here. This is great. Thank you for coming along. Now, just tell everybody what your background is before you start telling them what that talk was actually about. What do you do for your day job? Okay. Thanks, Doug. I'm a um, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I work on an adolescent inpatient unit. Consultation liaison psychiatry, and I oversee a lot of what happens in the Lady Salento um, Children's Hospital in the acute response team. Right, yo. Yep. Okay, so see, for people like me, that's frightening. I know that you might think the thing that I do is frightening, but I think the thing that you do is frightening. It's such a challenging area. Mm. But tell us a little bit about Max and his wolf suit, because you talked, I thought today, about one of the most interesting things that I've spent no time thinking about, really, and I'm literally part of the problem. What was it about? What were you trying to get across? What were we delving into today in your talk? So essentially, I think I became a psychiatrist because I'm very interested in human beings and how they behave. And as I was training, I realised that not only is patients interesting, I also realised that doctors are very interesting. And I started wondering about what we bring as doctors to the patient consultation. And as such, I sort of read some papers on it and I found this beautiful paper that was written in 1968 by Dr. Bruce Singh that was called Abnormal Treatment Behaviour and then there's literally been a silence for 50 years. Crickets. Yeah. Right. Which is extraordinary if you think about it because in my job that I do, that's the thing I deal with all the time. I deal with distressed colleagues and, and I'm one. You know, I'm, you know, I engage in, in some, if not all, of the abnormal treatment behaviours despite me you know, having supervision and mentors and, you know, all that sort of thing. So I thought that this is really an area that needs to be explored um, a lot more. And in consultation liaison psychiatry, one of the first things that happens is the referral question. Whenever I get a question to, to go and see a, a family or a patient or a distressed um, doctor or a nurse, the question is, well, why do you want me to come and see the patient and, and, and that very often relates to a colleague that's in distress. Right, so they're referring you their patient and you're actually sort of saying well what about you, Is that, am I getting that right? Are you, when, you, when you're getting a referral it's from another doctor that's referring somebody to you or are they referring themselves to you? Well that is a very good question and the, the truth is that very often the reason for a referral is, is not so much a distressed patient than a distressed doctor. Right. Um, but then the question is, why is my colleague so distressed? And very often it's because of that space between the doctor and the patient that is tricky or problematic or just not conforming to the usual way of thinking about the doctor-patient relationship. Which I think is perfect because I mean, we, we, we bandy that phrase around all the time, but I think sometimes we don't sort of stop for a second and think about it. Doctor-patient relationship. Mm. Now for a start, they keep changing the word patient for us, which we can delve into in a minute. But I think we totally forget ignore the fact that the word is relationship, which is always complex, always difficult, mm. always has its ups and downs. But we don't, it's like, 
but we don't want to talk about our part in that, you know, like, I, 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 I'm in love with somebody, we have a relationship, that one has ups and downs, we're allowed to consider those, but with my patients, I'm supposed to be some uber professional that has no problems at all, I am perfect, I am not the problem, the problem is there. In fact, there's another phrase we use all the time is, remember, you're not the sick person, you're not the patient, the patient has a disease. But there's more to it. I mean, so are these guys, your colleagues who are digging into this sort of stuff or are referring these to you, how do they react to this when you sort of try to talk to them about this kind of thing? Do people engage? Yeah, well, it's, I think it's difficult. Now, just, just to continue from what you've say, said, I'm a distressed doctor. Mm -hmm. I, I think you, you should be. We, the, the word patient means to suffer, and, and surely our patients suffer. They're sick, they're dying. They're not having a great time, but, but for me as a doctor looking after suffering patients, I, I suffer immensely in, in looking after them and, um, and as such you could argue that I'm a patient as well. My distress translates into behaviours of, of all sorts. So with regards to the doctor-patient relationship, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that we, we talked about this morning was what it means to be a, a patient is changing and Historically, we would say that we, we were treating patients, but then these days we, we look after patients, clients, consumers and customers, and each of these has a different meaning. A patient is someone who suffers, a, a, a consumer is someone who, who's there to get a good deal, the customer's always right, and a consumer is there to, you know, to, get, a good, um, to get resources. Mm -hmm. So each of these change or, or uniquely affect the doctor-patient relationship. And do you think that we're adapting to that or are we, is it one of those things that as the doctors or the carers of any description, be they nurses or paramedics and so on, are we blind to the differences in the changing kind of patient and extended cohort? I mean, do you think that, I mean, I've often sort of been quite, I don't like the idea of calling my patients clients. I'm mm. a bit old fashioned, it's got to do with my training and so on. I sort of think, I, I don't think it's a business interaction. It's not that I want a position of power. I just don't like thinking of it as a pure business interaction. Mm. But you're right, that is the reality of modern healthcare. And I was especially in certain areas more than others. So they are coming in and they have good expectations. And maybe well, you can't give them what they want, right? Well, and, and more than that, we, I, I don't think we we adapting to how we think about patients, customers, consumers, clients. I, I also think it's very difficult for us to think about society's expectations of what we as doctors bring um, historically we were just supposed to be good clinicians and that would make you a good doctor but now these days in line with CAMEDS and these are good developments we um, professionals, uh, doctors, we health advocates, we scholars, we leaders there's a, there's a whole lot of things that's happening in the doctor part of it too that, that, that makes for a very complicated relationship between doctors and, and, and patients. So abnormal treatment behaviour as described by Singh back in the 60s tell us a little bit about what your thoughts on that because I know that you're learning about this and investigating it all the time but you know an awful lot more about it than I do. Mm. How, how would you sort of summarize the sort of concept so how, how, how we actually sort of identify it or what we should be thinking about? Yeah well f first let me just say that I'm trying to figure this stuff out I've read a lot about it and I've thought a lot about it but the more I think about it the harder it gets so I'm not sitting here pretending that I've got it all figured out and that's one of the reasons I'm doing these talks is to, to try and get to the bottom of it. So abnormal treatment behaviour is, 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 maybe it's a misnomer because it's so prevalent that you, know, you can't even call it abnormal. Um, normality, as you know, is defined within a population and where I'm working it's so prevalent that you could almost argue that it's normal. But for the, for the purpose of this talk, abnormal treatment behaviour, well, normal treatment behaviour is simply how the reasonable doctor will behave when they're treating patients. 
And the, so normal treatment behaviour is what the reasonable patient will expect. And abnormal treatment behaviour, therefore, is behaving in ways other than what the reasonable doctor will behave. Right, okay. Mm. And is that defined by the doctor or by the patient? Because, you know, we've got the, you know, the proven patient standard, for example. I mean, when you say what the patient expects is the behaviour of a doctor, is it a patient point of view that dominates what abnormal treatment behaviour is? Or is it a third-party observer, that, or is it the doctor or other healthcare provider's point of view in terms of that was abnormal treatment behaviour by me? Mm. Or is it something that we can really break down like that at all? Well, that's why it's so tricky, and, and I think one of the reasons for that is, say for example, you think of yourself as a doctor, and you think of your patient as a patient, but your patient thinks of themselves as a customer who is always right, then what's going to happen is, if the patient turns up with the expectation, or the, the customer turns up with the expectation of being given a diagnosis that you as the doctor are not prepared to give, that will then result in the patient or customer um, having unsatisfied or dis not, not having, sat having unmet needs, then feeling distressed about it, displaying abnormal illness behaviour, which will then translate into distress on your part. Whether that's abnormal treatment behaviour is arguable, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know. What I can say is, is that there's distress in the doctor that then translates in behaviour that is ways other than what the reasonable doctor will, will behave like. Um, the, the way we, we think about abnormal treatment behaviour is over and under investigation, diagnosis, treatment and referral. But the, 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 um, but the underpinnings of it, I think, is the really important thing. Um, and that is that most of, 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 of what we, we, most of what we think and feel happens outside of conscious awareness. So, so that's an extraordinary finding, I think. That, that means that as you're sitting there now, Doug, that most of what's happening in your, in your head and in your heart is stuff that you're not aware of, which is an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary phenomenon. Yes, and a little bit difficult to, to, to deal with sometimes. And do you think, I mean, look, obviously with your training, I mean, we're talking about Freudian and, you know, other sort of stuff here, aren't we? I mean, in terms of the research that's been done over the last, the last century and, and our sort of understanding of the, the subconscious mind. But, I mean, we haven't got a very in-depth understanding of the subconscious mind, apart from perhaps just accepting it's there. And I think some people actually still kind of are uncomfortable with it to the degree where they, they doubt its existence or something like that. Um, so what you're saying is that I'm basically in a doctor-patient relationship, I'm trying to be the doctor that I think I'm supposed to be, which is, it's hard to work out exactly how to define that, and about six-sevenths of my thinking processes are essentially hidden, and I'm not really either even tapping into them, I'm not using them, I'm not aware of them, but they're definitely affecting the other seventh. Correct. Right. So what do we do? I mean, like, you know, when you've got friends and colleagues and people that you work with and respect that are distressed by these sort of situations, and you're trying to pick it apart, what, how does the conversation go? Yeah, I think when we, well, when I trained, the, the first thing we were taught was if you can't measure it, don't mention it, which, which, which I think is in part true. I do think that the other side of the equation is that most of the valuable information that we get from patients are not measurable mm. and happens in the sphere of unpleasant thoughts and very unpleasant feelings and, and I think we need to acknowledge that that's very important information to, to be looked at. And once we've given ourselves permission to do that, then the next step is to become aware of, of what this patient is really communicating to us and, 
And, and the way that we'll know that is to, to think these difficult thoughts and to feel these unpleasant feelings, to give ourselves permission to, to register them and then to create a culture where it's okay to feel it, even unpleasant things like feeling you hate the patient. And then to, to have a colleague that you can talk to about it or have a mentor or get supervision either individually or in groups. And for some of us, we need, some of us need therapy. Yeah. Um, so, so I think those are the crucial things. It's, it's very important what I'm going to say now. If, if, you, if you can think difficult thoughts, feel difficult feelings and articulate them, you won't have to do dumb stuff. That is act them out. Um, but that's no joke. That, that's very difficult to do. It, it, insight can only occur after hard psychological work has been done. And we need all the help we can get to do that. And so, the, what, without getting too personal and so on, but you, you pointed out that you've been distressed and, made, and, and upset, hurt, in fact, by the patients and, and the interactions when you, you feel somebody else is suffering and so on. What sort of things do you do to try and deal with these situations? Because I know I've had what would be described as you could find it abnormal treatment behaviour. I've definitely acted that out in different forms, too many to mention. Mm. But what sort of things do you do to try and help yourself get through those days? How do you, how do you go out of this? Yeah, well I'm quite lucky because in psychiatry um, part of our continued professional development and registration requirements is to be part of peer groups. Not, um, what, what that does is it, it, it helps us think about what we bring to, to the patient-doctor interaction and it, it helps us to reflect in a safe space with trusted colleagues where we can think about what, what is actually going on. Mm. Now, um, I, I do think that in psychiatry it's perhaps a little bit different because there's nothing worse than losing your mind. Mm. The, 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 the most lonely place to be in the world is when you've lost your mind and, and sitting with people in the world of madness is, is no joke. So I think psychiatrists perhaps need a little bit more help with that. That doesn't mean that, that, be, that talking with people who still have good reality testing but are severely distressed and, and maybe on the border of becoming disturbed um, is, is easy. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But, but I do think that the, the different levels of reflective functioning and mentorship and supervision and, and, and therapy is, is perhaps not as great for, for, um, for people who work with, with non-psychiatrically unwell patients than for psychiatrists. Is there any sort of data or sort of are people talking about this in the other subspecialties? So we're here at a paediatrics conference. Mm. I think paediatrics are generally a little better at being in touch with their feelings than certain other areas of medicine. Mm. Are they good at engaging with this? Because you obviously cross over with your adolescent interest. Do you think that paediatrics or general paediatrics have got any insight to this idea of abnormal treatment behaviour? Yeah, I think they've got really good insight. And the, the, the problem though is that the the um, being able to do paediatric work comes at a considerable psychological cost. What that means is that you, you folks don't have the luxury to stand back and to think deep thoughts and to feel unpleasant feelings when you're in an emergency department doing a resuscitation or in an intensive care unit having to do an intubation. So you don't have the luxury that I have to go to the coffee room and to make myself a cup of coffee and really think things through. That's the first tool in psychiatry is when you, you know, when you, when things get really hot, stop, take a step back, do as much nothing as possible, problems start when thinking stops. 
emergency physicians and ICU doctors don't have that luxury. So what I'm saying is that although paediatricians are aware of distress, although they have good insight and understand that there's something different happening here, they don't have the luxury of, of standing back and, and having a safe space to think yet. yet. But hopefully the paediatricians can allow themselves to have a safe space where they can later strike when the iron is cold mm. and to, to, to identify these unpleasant things that they don't want to think about and, and feel these thoughts that they don't want to feel and, and then discuss it with their mentors and colleagues and supervisors and so on. So do we think that, um, I mean, the, I think so much of this stuff has been done informally over the years, hopefully. Yes. Right. And there are aspects, as we, as we know, that the nature of how medicine and nursing and, and paramedicine are practiced is changing all the time. And yeah. um, so the, the used to be, we've had a fantastic talk for some, some people who, with, with incredible experience uh, from the sort of senior group um, talking about Five Gone or Adventure. I'll put a link to it in the notes, guys, early on. For four of the most senior pediatricians you could possibly even hear about their stuff and what they've done over time. But let's face it, they're always talking about being on call for a one and two. Now, if you're on call for a one and two, what happens is that your friends and the time that you spend in and around the hospital is greatly increased. Now, the increasingly shifty type systems, particularly in critical care, you're seeing less of that. So I'm wondering if those informal systems, which were an accidental safety net and maybe caught some of us in the past, are falling apart and we have to put in these more formal systems. That would be great, but there are certain groups, and I'll hold myself my hand up again, mm. that struggle with these formal systems. And, and I'm going to use the M word, you know, this sort of like mindfulness thing, and mm. is it going to fix everything? And there's people who are understandably cynical about this. It's like, well, there's an online mindfulness program I have to do in order to get paid this weekend. And we can kind of react badly against it. How do we manage to get things like the type A personality emergency physicians to do things like you're talking about? I mean, do you th is, are there any attempts in the other, beyond paediatrics and the other specialties to try and get some out of this? Yeah, there's an international movement for reflective functioning. There's a Schwartz group that's designed to address um, the, this issue for everyone in hospitals, but they, they, they're very large and you, you, you sometimes wonder how, how effective they are. Mm. Then there's also a movement, I think mostly British, where there's a, a, a type of group called bilingual groups where doctors can come together and think about what, um, what's happening for their patients. It's really important just to, to emphasize that I think there's different levels of distress and different levels of complexity and at mm -hmm. the most basic level of distress. I think a, a, a collegial discussion about what's stressing you out or, or distressing you is, is more than sufficient and mm -hmm. it would be a great way of going about in your day-to-day -day practice. But then sometimes when things are just a little notch higher and a little bit more complicated and you start thinking, you know, dear me, I don't want to tell my mate that I really hate this patient mm. with a fury that's this almost not possible yeah. to yeah. articulate. When that happens then you're gonna need someone who are professional and who can who can work with that sort of feeling in a safe space. And then believe, believe me, that Sometimes it gets even worse than that. And, okay. and sometimes we as doctors identify that we do have things in our own past that becomes uh, yeah. fairly obvious when, we, when, when there's a repetition compulsion in the work that we do and, and then it's, it's, it's important to, to get therapy. Um, so there's different levels of distress requiring different levels of sophistication depending on, on the context.
So I guess bringing it back to that 1962 paper by saying, mm -hmm. why has there been no more work? I don't, I don't know. You, we can speculate about that. I'll, I'll have to go back and, and look for other papers. Maybe there's been other papers that's addressed it with um, by, by by using different type of language. But I, I do suspect that the reason we we we're not thinking about it is we don't want to. I, I do think that it's very unpleasant for us as as doctors to consider the possibility that we we are suffering and and we are less than perfect and and there's a lot of forces in society that, that pushes us into that perfection space, the, the death and dying culture, if someone dies it should be someone's fault, right? Mm -hmm. And with children it's even worse. So there's lots of factors I think that, that makes it very uncomfortable for us as doctors to, to think about us being anything less than perfect. Indeed, I mean in fact, you know, if it's kind of like we have to have our own little superhero myth around ourselves and, and, and our profession. And, and, I th and I've got a lot of humble colleagues and so on, and they're, they might be modest about themselves, but the funny thing is that they still kind of propagate a little bit of it when they're projecting onto their other colleagues who they will tell you how wonderful they are, how smart they are, how strong she is, and how, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's almost like a sort of a, like micro-racism, but micro-anti-self-insightism, or whatever you want to call it. I find it quite interesting, this idea that that it's so common and you know as you say it and I, and I was looking around the room and it was a lot of people sort of going looking a little bit pensive and just going like yeah shit that's me mm. I've done that and I certainly have done that I certainly have patients who pushed my buttons and I didn't quite know why and it, it merited further investigation but I didn't investigate it so I'm literally one of the guys you're talking about yeah so Doug's on the couch <laughs> um, but uh, good to hear that you are too that makes me feel a little bit better about it so I suppose if nothing else the first step is getting people to register that in the doctor-patient relationship, the doctor is, or the nurse or whoever else is providing care. They are a human being with all the foibles and flaws, and they have good days and they have bad days, and they bring something to it. They don't bring a monotonous, monotone, single, always monolithic, same person to each patient conversation. Every single person is different. In fact, it's good that we go in as different people, but we're perhaps kidding ourselves that we're not. I loved your talk. I thought it was a really interesting thing. I loved. It. I, th I thought it was very. You know, I didn't see that one coming. And I, I think that the thing that you're trying to get at, in terms of trying to get people to sort of maybe just investigate this in themselves a bit more, and, and like I say, allow yourself to think the thought, allow yourself to maybe even enunciate it to somebody else. You know, because if we go around and I start asking our colleagues about this, do you find that it comes back and you get a lot of like, actually, I thought that too. I mean, you were very good about standing up on stage and. And making it clear that you have experienced almost all of the things that you were talking about. Do you find when you open those conversations with your colleagues yes. that they are yeah. able to talk about it? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I was a very distressed intern because I didn't understand the subtleties embedded in the complexity of the doctor-patient relationship. And I think that resulted in... But I sometimes wonder if that resulted in me becoming a psychiatrist to try and understand myself better but but what I'm finding with my colleagues all the time is they're actually really good at it hmm. they know on some level that things are just not right and and the way they that th they they put that across is they'll say to me oh you know this patient's really getting to me I don't know why they'll say oh, I'm finding myself doing things here that I wouldn't usually do hmm. or they, they would say I, I really feel intense pressure to act in a certain way and I'm just not sure that that's right what do you think or can you please come and see the patient and I think that's great. One of the things about emergency physicians in, in particular, 
that they're very good at is they're very good at doing mental states mm. without knowing it. They're doing it, yeah. Because they, they're using the type of language, isn't the language that we as psychiatrists would use, but they're still describing appearance, behavior, speech, thought, thinking patterns, mood affect, insight and judgment and, uh, and cognition. And it just literally is three or four adjectives that have been doctored into the referral already, isn't it? That's so, right. Yeah. And not only do they describe that really well, they also are very good at, 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 at expressing how that affects them and, and how that interferes with their ability to do their work. Yeah, okay. So even though I was laughing at myself as being an emergency background kind of person, a type A personality, we might actually be in a good position try and sort of maybe even be at, at the forefront of engaging with this sort of whole concept and accepting that there is such a thing as abnormal treatment behavior and that we have to maybe start um, just bringing it into the everyday. Is that what we need to do? Yeah, I, you see, I like, um, I'm very good at losing, losing with chess. And you're good at losing a chess. <laughs> losing that chess. Okay. And one of the one of the great principles of, of chess is if you, if you can't trust your judgment, there's no reason to play the game. And I like that a lot, and, and I, I do think that when doctors develop insight, that's the first step to improving judgment. And when your judgment tells you that something is just not right, if you can't trust that judgment, then you, you shouldn't play the game. Mm. But most of us are, and most of us should. So, you know, I want to give our listeners permission to trust their judgment. You know, if you feel that something is not right, you know, go on that, go on that, that feeling. Yeah. Yep. We do so many things on gut instinct, perhaps taking care of ourselves, should be one of them. Hmm, great. Jenny, thank you so much for coming along today. Um, I will put a link at the bottom of the notes for this podcast to, I hope your talk is one of the ones that's coming out with Don't Forget the Bubbles. I'm not entirely sure what they've got going, but brilliant effort today. I look forward to seeing you at another one of these things, and, uh, and good luck. And hopefully you'll find um, more stuff written by people on this subject. And if you don't, I'd suggest maybe you should write some. Thank you, Doug. Cheers.